The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. If you would, and open them to Exodus chapter 25, and you will need your Bibles today. We have quite a bit of scripture to read, and I'd like you to be able to follow along. Exodus chapter 25, today we return to our uh, study of Christ as he is seen in the Old Testament worship of the tabernacle. Last week I mentioned that I was encouraged to speak on the tabernacle by some comments that were made by some of our members who said that it would be good to hear more preaching about Jesus. And I do realize that much of the time we are indirect in our preaching of Jesus And that's necessary because there are many doctrines of the faith that must be taught. Uh, All of these doctrines are connected to Christ, but we don't always teach them by going to the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, or the death of Christ as we examine those doctrines. If all that we preached was the birth, the life, and the death of Christ and stuck with those subjects, Our knowledge of Scripture and the faith would be deficient. We wouldn't know very much or have understanding of the many other subjects that are in the Bible. And these are subjects that are critical to our maturity in the faith. But as I say this, and as important as it is for us to learn all the doctrines that we have in the Word of God, I realize that we can go long stretches of service after service when we don't focus on Jesus himself. One of the most remarkable aspects of our faith is that there is the miracle of the pre-existent Christ. That is that he did exist. Years before he was born in Bethlehem, uh, this world was created. Jesus Christ is the creator of this world. God created people to know him and to worship him and to give him glory. But before much time passed, the first man disobeyed God and all of his posterity, of course, which includes us, was estranged from the creator. In the third chapter of Genesis, God promised that he would redeem fallen man by sending one who would be the seed of the woman, one without sin, And he would come to restore the relationship between God and man that was broken when Adam fell. Now, admittedly, we don't completely understand these things because suddenly there was a bright light that came on when we finished reading Genesis 1 through 3. And then suddenly we just understood what Genesis 3.15 was all about, that that is speaking of Jesus Christ who would come to be the Savior of the world. Now we understand these things by taking a backward look. We have the New Testament and we look back to the prophecies of Christ that are made in the Old Testament because the mystery of these events is revealed to us through New Testament scriptures. But as I say that, does it mean that thousands of years before Christ came, there was nothing but ignorance of what God would do to redeem fallen man? Were all of the people in the Old Testament times in the dark about what God would do? Did they have no understanding that one like Jesus Christ would come into the world? Well, the answer to that question is no. From Genesis 3.15 and then on through the Old Testament until Christ came, God revealed his plan step by step. The plan of redemption is unfolded step by step by types and figures and prophecies that revealed certain aspects of the Messiah. Now a case in point would be Acts chapter 3 verses 22 to 23. Peter is speaking and quoting from the Old Testament, and this is what he says. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet 
shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. This prophecy is identified by Peter to be about Jesus Christ. And all of those who first heard this prophecy in the Old Testament understood that Moses referred to a prophet that would come after him, a superior prophet who had the power of life and death. Now, the most important Old Testament figures of Christ were in the structured system of worship of the tabernacle. At the core of that worship, the very center of it is Jesus Christ, and yet he was not yet incarnate. He was not yet God in the flesh. They couldn't see him. They couldn't see the unseen God, but what he was like and what he would do was given to the people in symbolic form. And the preeminent symbol in the Old Testament for Israel was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark represented Jesus Christ. Now the command that God made uh, to uh, make the Ark was the first that God gave to Moses in his instructions. Now, more precisely, I should say that the first command that God gave Moses was for them to take an offering. And as I said the other night, for Baptist people, we don't want to forget to take an offering. And so we do that every time we we come together. Uh, Take an offering. But more precisely, as I say, the second command uh, was... First is to take an offering, and then immediately following that is to make the Ark of the Covenant. Now, for Israel, an offering of materials was needed. The materials were gathered to make the tabernacle sanctuary. And then when all these were collected, the first part constructed was this box that is called the Ark of the Testimony. And so the first instructions that God gave Moses concerned the person that you want to hear about, the person that... You want to talk about the one that you put your trust in. And that person is not Moses. And it's not Noah or David or Daniel. It is not Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the Old Testament patriarchs. The ark is about Jesus Christ. Now if you look at Exodus chapter 25, we'll read a few verses. We'll refer to some of the others later. But in the 25th chapter, beginning in verse number 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. Now the description that we see here is of a box that is 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. It was a wooden box that was covered with pure gold. The slides that I've been using for illustration was made early in the 1950s. And strangely, as important as the ark is to the study of the tabernacle, uh, this set of slides did not have a full picture of the ark. Now, uh, if you'll show us the, the one that we've used you can see that it doesn't show the entire ark. I, I, to take, go to the next one, if you would, there. I hope, hopefully, I, there's not another one after that. Okay, I'm sorry about that. But you, you get the, we, we, I've covered it up with that. But uh, you, there's not a full picture of the entire ark uh, that I have that I can show you. But for centuries, going back uh, thousands of years to the time of the Exodus, There are two symbols of the Jewish religion that stand out above all the others. The first of these would be the menorah. That is the equivalent of the golden lampstand in the tabernacle. And the second, uh, very closely associated 
with Israel is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, although the menorah is a prominent symbol that you see today, and you will see it in places like the lighting of the menorahs at Hanukkah in Union Square in San Francisco, the menorah in the Old Testament is not the most sacred of Israel's symbols. That distinction belongs to the Ark of the Covenant. The original lampstand of Bible times or the original menorah has never been found, but the Jews have no problem making replicas of it and placing those replicas in their synagogues. But the ark is different. You'll not find a replica of the ark of the covenant in their synagogues. Now, hear me out on this because they do have an ark in their synagogues, but it's not like what I've just shown you in that picture. They do have an ark, and ark simply means a box. They have a box that contains the uh, Torah, the, the laws of Moses. They, they, the reading of those laws of Moses are a big part of Jewish worship. But many of the Jews today don't believe that the Ark of the Covenant was actually real and that there was anything to that other than a myth. But this ark represents Jesus Christ. It symbolizes Christ, who is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Now, let me just review a little bit before we go on. We, we've talked about, in these messages, the focal point of worship. That the ark is the focal point. It was kept in the tabernacle behind a curtain that divided the tabernacle into two rooms. The place of the ark was called the most holy place, and that's where God's presence was shown in the glorious light that is known as the Shekinah. Outside of the tabernacle, standing over where the place where the ark was on the inside, was a large cloud, and that stood over the holy place during the day, and then at night it became a pillar of fire, and that was to show that God was there. It symbolized the glory of God. You may remember the story when in the days of the judges, the ark was captured by the Philistines. Eli was the high priest at the time. This was when Samuel was young, and later he would become the last judge of Israel, and he would be the prophet of Israel that the people knew that God spoke through. Israel went to war with the Philistines and the enemy prevailed and there were 4,000 Israelites that were killed. They were puzzled by this. They didn't understand why God would allow their defeat. But instead of speaking to the Lord, praying to him and asking for his help, they made up their own minds that they would just go to the tabernacle, which was in Shiloh at the time. They would go to the tabernacle and they would fetch the ark and they would take it into battle with them. Well, much of the problem that caused Israel's defeat was corruption in the priesthood by Eli and his wicked sons. But rather than correct those problems, they thought that all they needed to do was just take the ark like it's a good luck charm, and they would carry God into battle, and God would go with them, and he would defeat their enemies. But instead, the ark was captured. Eli's two sons were killed. Of course, that's a good indication that God was not with them. The ark was nothing without God's presence. It meant nothing unless God was there. Well, the Philistines thought, hey, we've won a great victory. We have captured Israel's ark. We have captured their God because they didn't understand the ark of the covenant to be anything more than just an idol. And that brings me to my point. When Eli was informed that the ark was captured and his two evil sons were killed, he was shocked and he was distressed and fell backwards off the seat where he was sitting and broke his neck. Eli's daughter-in-law was ready to deliver a child and that news was distressing to her that her husband had been killed, that her father-in-law was dead and she immediately went into labor. And when the child was born, she named him Ichabod, a word that means there is no glory. This is First Samuel chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, 
because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. And this encapsulates the problem in Israel today. They have no temple. They have no ark. The Shekinah, the glory of God, is not with them because they don't have the Christ of the ark. And so what they can't do is just pretend all is good. They can't do that. The ark is such a significant part of Israel's worship that nothing substitutes for it. But sadly, the Jews have no understanding of the person of the ark and who it was made to represent. This brings us to our second observation, which is the figure of worship. The ark was about Christ. It was a symbol of God's presence. And this, this it meant that God literally was with the people. And it represented the time when God would come to this earth and he would take on human form and live with his people. And we know, we have been celebrating this, that Jesus Christ came to this earth and the construction of the ark was to show him as the God-man. The wood of its construction was a symbol of his humanity. He was the desert plant that we read about last week who came up from the earth, so to speak. The wood that was used to make the ark represented flesh, Adam's flesh. Adam came from the dust of the ground, and this is what Christ did. He took on human flesh and was made like us. Made like us, but different from us. There's a monumental difference between him and us. Though he was flesh and blood, and though he was given birth by a woman, the impregnation of that woman was by the Holy Spirit. And so, unlike us, he was born without a sin nature. He was incorruptible. And so the ark was a picture that Jesus is incorruptible in his humanity. He, he was tempted. The Holy Spirit took him into the wilderness for testing. His flesh was weakened by 40 days without food. And when he was as low as he could go, when he was as vulnerable as he could be, he endured every temptation that Satan threw at him. Satan could not drag a sin out of him because there was no sin in him. God allowed him to be sifted, to be ground down, to be tested in every area, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and Jesus never faltered. He was a man, but he was a perfect man. And through all those temptations, he came out unscathed and was proved worthy to be a suitable Savior. The incorruption of his humanity is astounding, but that's only half the story of the ark. The wood was covered with gold. Let's see this in verse number 11 of our text, back in Exodus 25. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. The gold was to show the divinity of Christ. Within and without, he is gold. And the crown of Gold that was put around the lid represents his kingship. That he is king of all, that he is lord of all. And so as God, Jesus is incomparable in his deity. Now that story about Eli and the capture of the ark proves that Israel could not prevail unless they depended on God. Without Jehovah God, there is no God. The Philistines captured the ark and they soon found out that they had not captured Israel's God. So far from it was that when they took the ark and they put it in the temple of their God, Dagon, that their God fell before the ark as if to surrender to it. Israel's God could not be treated as their gods. All the man-made gods... Those are nothing. All their idols are powerless. 
And we, we don't much deal with that today. We, we don't talk so much about people worshiping idols and statues and not in Western civilization. Uh, perhaps uh, the only ones that we really deal with are the idols of Catholicism. People have mostly gone away from worshiping statues, but they still have their idols nonetheless. And the idol that snares our people today is the idol of self. Because everybody wants to be God and do whatever they believe is right. Their feelings rule. So they make themselves the standard. They make up good and evil. They make up right and wrong. And so the standard of righteousness is whatever they think it is. And when that happens, we can always reach that standard. And oddly enough, this was the problem with the Jews when Christ came. They substituted God's commands with their traditions, and so they lowered God's standard down to a level that they could keep. And so their scribes and Pharisees, their priests, they were all holy by their own evaluation. But Jesus said they were as far from God as they could possibly be. And what they were doing was worshiping the wrong God. They should have believed in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Because there is no God like him. He can't be compared to paganistic gods. And certainly he can't be compared to the idol that we make of self. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I hate to say this, but false Christianity, today false Christianity is the worst religion for making man equal to God. Now how is that that so? Well, whenever a priest or a pastor says that there are things that you can do to make God accept you, then he is dragging Jesus Christ down to our level. I know that we harangue against Catholicism, well we should for their gross corruption of Christianity, but they are not the only problem in false Christianity. Interestingly, there was a man that visited us here a few years ago. still remember him. He was a very interesting fellow. Uh, He moved back east some years ago, but I spoke to him as he was leaving the auditorium. Uh, We were talking at the door after a morning service, and he wanted to tell me a little bit about his journey in becoming a true born-again believer. He told me that for years he thought that he was a Christian. He was involved in ministries that had long lists of rules to keep, And he was told that if he kept these list of rules, that that would make him a Christian. But he said there was a time in his life when his faith was severely tested. There were many trials that came into his life, things that he uh, described as earth-shattering events. And he had nowhere to turn. His faith wouldn't sustain him because there was nothing there. His faith... For all these years had been in what he could do. And what he found out is he had no control over anything. He had no, he had nothing to turn to. And so this started him searching for truth and for a church that was more than just a show. Well, I thought it was very interesting that he said, well, there are too many churches that he visited. It had rock bands and he paused for a moment and he said, these churches are all worldly. And what he meant was they worship self, not Jesus Christ. See, the problem is there are too many other gods. And that kind of faith is not the faith of Jesus Christ. That is not a faith that will hold you up. Jesus is incomparable in his deity. You can't trust your ability and trust him too. Those two things are mutually exclusive. It must be all about Christ and none about you. He's the God who can do what you can't do. And that's why you need to trust him alone. Any other faith is the wrong kind of faith. In other words, as we've just read, or we've seen here in scripture, he is gold. He's crowned with glory and majesty. 
the crown of gold says that he is God above all gods, king above all kings, he is Lord of all lords. One of our hymns says, crown him king of kings, crown him Lord of lords, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, Emmanuel, God is with us. And he shall reign, he shall reign, he shall reign forevermore. And what the author of that song could have done, he could have stamped on it a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. He is God's presence with us. He is Emmanuel. He is our king with us. He is our God. As many of you know, Pam has made multiple hospital visits. This year alone, she's been in the hospital 11 times. I remember two years ago, we were in an elevator. Uh, They were moving her from the ER to the fourth floor of the hospital. And the young man who was pushing the gurney was named Manny. And uh, as we were riding up the elevator, I, I looked at his name tag, and it said Emmanuel. And I said, your name is Emmanuel. That means God with us. And he said, yes, most people don't know that. And he said, everybody just calls me Manny. Well, I'm not familiar enough with Jesus to give him a nickname. Uh, I wouldn't call him Manny, not me, because he's God above all gods. But there's another interesting part of the ark that I'd like to talk to you for just about a moment here. And we'll come back to Manny in a minute. Um, like other parts... Uh, th- this is it, it's there, but there's there is something in it. It's it's different, and you may not think about it, but there is something here that we learn about the character of Christ. I just mentioned it last week very briefly, and I, I didn't really get into it. But this comes in verse number thirteen. If you would look there, Exodus twenty-five, verse thirteen, it says, "And thou shalt make staves of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and thou shalt put the staves into the rings." By the sides of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. Now, the staves, this is the, these are the long poles that were used to carry the ark. Now, you see in verse number 15 that these staves or these poles were put into rings. Those are the holders that the poles slipped through. And it says that these staves were not to be removed. Now, that seems like a very insignificant detail, except that the ark is so supremely suggestive of Jesus Christ and emblematic of God that there's nothing that we read here that's insignificant. Everything has its purpose, even if we haven't found out the purpose. The permanency of the staves is all about the faithfulness of God to his people. Now, this is what Moses said to Israel. This is in Deuteronomy 31, verses 6 through 8. He said to them, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage. For thou must go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn unto their fathers to give them. And thou shalt cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he it is that doth go before thee. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. Fear not, neither be dismayed. Now Moses spoke those words to the people and to Joshua, just before Joshua became the leader that would take them into Canaan. Now, throughout the wilderness wanderings, the the ark was in the Holy of Holies, and the staves, the poles, remained in the rings, and that was to show that God would never leave them, that he would take them to the place they were going. And then when the Levites would pick up the ark, and they would grab those staves, and they would hoist the ark above their heads, and it was the ark that was at the forefront forefront of the procession as they as they marched towards the promised land when they crossed the Jordan River it was the ark that led the way when they marched around Jericho the ark led the way God was with them for as long as they traveled and until they possessed Canaan there were battles that were continually fought and won enemies were conquered and through all of this 
the pole stayed in the ark, and that battle and all these things that took place, this is an example of the Christian life. That we are on our way to the promised land. Maybe you didn't notice this. I doubt that there's any of you that haven't. But there's a fight. There's a fight that we're going through every single day. There is a struggle to stay on top. And often, we as God's people get weary of that fight. What is it that holds us up? God is there. Christ never leaves us. The Holy Spirit is with us. We sang about him just a few minutes ago. He is living with us. He is in us and will always be in us until we reach that goal to be with Christ in heaven. Now I can tell you that I don't have any secrets for surviving what we're going through in our family. I can't give you any secrets to how we do that. But I do know this. God is with us. It's a struggle every day. Believe me, it is what we're going through. And Satan wants us to think that God doesn't care. He wants us to lose hope and just give up. Like Job's wife told him, just curse God and die. My wife doesn't say that, but Satan sure does. We don't give up. We keep fighting. We struggle every day to stay upright. And we can't do that unless God is with us. He said he would be and he is. And we know that. We feel that. In fact, we feel that God is with us many times through you. Because you help us. Because you pray for us. Because you care enough to lighten our burden by bringing food. That's one of the ways that God shows that he is with us. Israel had God with them. Because of their unfaithfulness, God should have left them. But remember, the ark represents Jesus Christ. God loves us and never forsakes us because of his son, Jesus Christ, and the work that he did for us. It's Christ's faithfulness that always works in our favor. And so when God looks at us, he's not really looking at our faithfulness. He's looking at Jesus Christ. That's our preservation Jesus Christ is always faithful. He's always with us. He is in us. And so thus God never leaves us. Now interestingly, the staves stayed in the ark for another 450 years. They are always there. After the temple was built, they were there. Now you remember that David was a man of war and he wanted to build the temple, but God wouldn't let him. God said no. He said, David... You can't do it. David was a warrior. He was still fighting battles. But then his son Solomon came to the throne. And during his reign, all of Israel's enemies were subdued. And Israel was at peace. And Solomon's kingdom was a kingdom of peace. And so during his time, he was able to build the temple. And when it was completed, all the tabernacle furnishings, especially the ark, were moved into the temple. Now, what I'd like you to do is turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. And I want to show you what happened when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8, and we'll start reading in verse number 4. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse number 4. And they brought up the Ark of the Lord and the tabernacle of the congregation and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle... Even those did the priest and the Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. And the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, into the oracle of the house, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. For the cherubim spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark. And the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves, that the ends of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the oracle. And they were not seen without. 
and they are there unto this day. That last part's very confusing, isn't it? They drew out the staves so that the ends were visible in the holy place. Does that mean that they drew them out outside to the uh, outside of the holy of holies? Well, well, let me let me help you with this. What what it's actually saying to us? And I'm sorry to read this to those of you who believe that the King James Version is verbally inspired. But the ESV clarifies this, so I'll read from the ESV, and you'll you just have to crucify me later for doing this. 1 Kings 8, verse 8, And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, and they are there to this day. What does all that mean? Well, it means that the poles were were drawn out, were not, I should say, it doesn't mean that the poles were drawn out so they could be seen in the holy place outside the veil, because that would mean that the poles would push through the veil, and that wouldn't make sense, and that wasn't possible. It means that they were pulled out just a little ways, and yet they remained in the Holy of Holies, where the priest could see them when he went in each year with the blood of the sacrifice. Now, the point of this, actually, is that the staves were still in place, and they were not removed, even though that Israel was at peace. Now, Israel was living in peace during the time of Solomon, and if the battles were, were, were over, why didn't they pull out the poles? They didn't pull them all the way out. Why didn't they do that? Well, folks, Bible study is fascinating. Typology is fascinating. The ark represents Jesus Christ, and in the Old Testament, and still today, the battle is not over. So when will the staves be removed? Symbolically, when will these poles be removed? Well, the answer to that question is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's go there. This is the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. It deals with the supreme importance of Christ's resurrection to our faith. So we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20 and then following. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God to God, rather, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Christ now is still fighting for us. He's working for us. He's interceding for us. He occupies a mediatorial office. Now that means that he is the bridge between us and the Father until he finally has all of us home in heaven. The work of Christ will go on and on and on until all the world's kingdoms are subdued beneath him. What is the last enemy to be destroyed? What do the scriptures say? The last enemy is death. Well, you know that each of us is going to die. Believers die. That goes on every day. When Christ subdues all, death will be defeated forever. Death is gone Nothing is left then but eternity with God. And when that happens, everything is reconciled to God. That's the meaning of the last part of verse number 28, that God may be all in all. That is, everything is subdued, 
And there's nothing contrary to God in the entire universe. And when that happens, God is through fighting evil. There is no more evil. There are no more evil angels. There are no more evil men. And when that is done, Christ will surrender this mediatorial office because it's not needed any longer. And he'll be seen throughout all of eternity in his perfect humanity, but not a mediator between us and the Father any longer. He's fully returned to his glory that he had before he stepped down, and thus the Trinity is all in all. This is difficult to comprehend, but I want you to understand that though Christ did step down, he never surrendered any equality with the Father. He's always fully God. What he did was to voluntarily submit himself to the Father, but he was still equal, and he will surrender his office of mediation that he undertook To bring us to God. In eternity, it's done, it's over, never needed again. So what happens then? Symbolically, the staves will be taken out of the Ark of the Covenant. The war is over. I don't know about you, but I'm looking for that. All battles won. No more of this nonsense that we're going through today. The Lord tries and tests us and... We need to be faithful to him, but I'll be glad when being faithful is not going to be a problem any longer. Looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. Now what Solomon did then was to preside over a peaceful kingdom, but his reign wasn't quite enough for Israel to pull out the poles from the Ark of the Covenant. Now again, with great interest, let's consider the scriptures. This is what Jesus said in Matthew twelve forty-two. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Christ is greater than Solomon. He's the king of kings. Even Solomon must bow before Jesus Christ. Jesus is incomparable in his deity. Jesus is not a king. Jesus is the king. And he is God. But natural man man doesn't see him that way. They only see him as a man. And there are many theories about Jesus. He was a great guy. They say he was a superb fellow and did a lot of good things that we ought to pattern ourselves after. Everybody's got an opinion of Jesus. In some churches, he is Manny. He's the buddy that you just get up next to and you put your arms around him and you hug him and you just love him to death. Natural people see Jesus as a man, not as God. And that is still the same old thing. Bring Jesus down to our level. Make sure that all of his opinions are the same as our opinions. And in short, that falls short of who Jesus is. He is God. And nobody recognizes him truly as God until in his holiness and righteousness, the person is enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Nobody is Jesus' friend until they've been made his child by a supernatural work in their heart. The natural person must become the supernatural person by having the divine nature implanted into him by regeneration. That's the only way that you'll ever see that Jesus is incomparable in his deity. I hadn't intended to read this scripture, uh, and so it's not on your listening sheet. It's not, it's not on the board there, so you won't see it there. But this is in First Peter uh, chapter, Second uh, Peter rather, chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these, listen, 
ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is absolutely essential for you to understand who Jesus is, and that is that you have become a partaker of the divine nature. Now let me sum up up this part of the message by asking you to turn to John chapter 9. And I want you to notice the difference between a person who is supernaturally enlightened by the knowledge of Jesus and those who walk only in natural understanding. In John chapter 9, Jesus spat on the ground, he made a little ball of clay, and he took that clay and put it on the eyes of a blind man. And he told the blind man to go and wash off the mud in the pool of Siloam. This man had congenital blindness. That means that he was blind from his birth, born blind. He's not someone who became blind. And that was necessary so that nobody could say, oh, well, his his sight returned. No, he had no sight that could return. He was always blind, having a deformity from his birth. That, that is a congenital defect. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day, and that put the Pharisees into a snit. And they said, because Jesus worked and made that little ball of clay, and he healed the man, the blind man, that he couldn't be from God, because what he did was to break the law of the Sabbath. In John 9, verse 16, Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God. Because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. Now what follows this is wrangling and arguments about the validity of the miracle. There was some discussion with his parents to verify the blindness. The Pharisees could not reconcile this. Because they would not admit that Jesus could possibly be from God. Now let's pick up the reading where the Pharisees questioned the blind man. This is verse 24. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes." Now, we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Now, do you see the difference in people? A miracle was obvious. It was verified. There was no just denial, and yet that's what they did. Now, they're talking to a blind man. He's not a theologian. He couldn't stand toe-to-toe with the erudite teachers of the law, but he did, didn't he? He shut them down because he was supernaturally enlightened. The Pharisees weren't. They, they on, couldn't honestly argue the point, so they just threw him out. They wouldn't believe because they had no understanding of Jesus other than he was a man and a sinful, deranged man at that. They never saw the gold in Jesus. Now, the recently healed blind man concluded Jesus could not be a sinner and do these things. And if he wasn't a sinner, this is what's going on in his mind. If he wasn't a sinner, then he must be God. Because only God doesn't sin. He was humanity and deity united in the God-man, Jesus Christ. There is no one like Jesus. 
He is incorruptible in his humanity and incomparable in his deity. He is our God. He is the real figure of worship. To be without Jesus is to be, as Paul said, without hope and without God in the world. If the Jews only knew what they truly missed in that little box called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in New Testament times, they didn't have the Ark in their temple, and they didn't need the Ark in the temple. It was missing for over 400 years. They needn't look for it because they had it. They had it. They didn't know that the Ark returned. And his name was Emmanuel, God with us. Wood and gold, incorruptible humanity, incomparable deity. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the study of your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ who came into this world to save us from our sins. It's just a remarkable thing to look at the Bible and and see just the marvelous things that you've done. I was just, just thinking about this and how that people think that the Bible is a simple book or we hear people so many times say the Bible is contradictory. Well, they don't know the God of the Bible. They don't know how intricate his details are. And Lord, how they can be found out only one way, believing in Jesus Christ and having the Holy Spirit to guide us through these scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us today. Great season of the year. We're thankful for the fellowship that we have and for the joy of this season. Just to be together in Berean Baptist Church is a privilege that we can't express the joy of. Thank you, Lord, for being with us. Through all of our trials and tribulations, everything that we go through, we know that you are the only one who is steadfast, unmovable, always dependable. Lord, you are with us. We ask these things. We ask that you would help us to serve you better every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.